Let's go to war! You're gonna have to learn your cliches. You're gonna have to study them. You're gonna have to know them. Well, you know, you go out there and you give 110% and you want to play good and, you know, you hope you play good. I think we play pretty good tonight. Well, you know, there's no I in the word team, man. This is a team effort. Ten, five, touchdown. Oh, man, you know, you just got to play one game at a time and go out there and give 110%. All right! Play ball! Hiya, sports movie lovers, and thank you for inhaling the 53rd occasion of a Scoring at the Movies chit-chat. Since we do a spoiler-laden sports podcast every second Thursday, obviously 53 episodes means just over two years' worth of content. So yes, we just had our two-year anniversary, which was June the 7th, 2018. And I'm still waiting for my anniversary gift. Well, you could give one to me, too, couldn't you? It's always about you, Marge. (laughs) It is always about me. (laughs) Anyway, I'm the guy who definitely isn't 1,000 days sober. Probably not even 1,000 seconds sober. In fact, I'm maybe 10 seconds sober. Ryan Ellis. And here's the physics teacher and submission specialist who would beat his brother into submission to pay his mortgage. Lord Chris DiGregorio. Thank you, Ryan. You said two very important things just then. One, inhale. Two, sober. So we'll just take care of that real quick here. And and if I'm the submission specialist of anything, it's of submitting to anything Allison asks of me. And you don't have a brother, so that couldn't really play into anything there. What are you drinking, by the way? You didn't tell us that. This is Bombshell Blonde Ale. Actually, from Frank Brewing Company. Oh, right. And Frank Grillo plays Frank in this movie. Actually, I was thinking about your good friend Frank and my cat named oh, Frank. Okay. But yeah, sure. Let's go with Frank. <laughs> Who's Frank Grillo? They don't matter right now. This is business, man. This is serious <laughs> shit. And by the way, before we get going, i got to give you some advice. Speaking of Frank Grillo, breathe, breathe, breathe. He says that so much in this movie. That's his biggest advice. I'm not good with actor names. Oh, he's you? the trainer. He's Brendan's trainer. He's Brendan's trainer, okay. He's also the guy who plays Crossbones in, I don't know how many Captain America movies, but definitely one of them played Crossbones, the bad guy. That's right. This is where actually visiting IMDb from time to time would really help mm-hmm. me out. I spent the entire movie looking at this guy's face thinking, I know you from somewhere. It wasn't Civil War. It was the follow-up. Winter Soldier. Yeah. He might have been in some of the Avengers movies. I don't recall. I don't think so. I think he maybe died in that one. So maybe it was a one-off for him. Okay. These days, it's hard not to be in a superhero movie. Tom Hardy's been both in DC and Marvel. It's true. As is Michael Keaton and some other people, but Hardy's played both Bane and Venom. I've had to turn down offer after offer from Marvel. They just keep coming. Chris, we need you for insert Marvel project here. And I just say no. I say no, I can't. It's a conflict of interest with scoring at the movies. Loyal to DC? <laughs> oh, loyal to this podcast. I hell with DC. Like you said, it's hard not to be in a superhero movie these days. You have to actively try to avoid being in one there's so many in production robert redford and glenn close have been in superhero movies for crying out loud (laughs) both marvel actors in fact by the way this man no one can see it except for me but he's doing it for my benefit and he is in the octagon nice background on zoom here of course we're still doing it like that zoom championship is all over your head there and this is a championship match we'll be talking about Warrior was released by Lionsgate on september 9th 2011 that is in fact two days shy of 10 years after 9-11. 9-11. People didn't turn out to see it. Maybe there wasn't enough star power yet. Tom Hardy is Tommy. Easy there. <laughs> Same name, basically. And Joel Edgerton is Brendan. And then Patty is their father, Nick Nolte. And we said Frank already tests yeah. is Brendan's wife, Jennifer Morrison. So they're the names. We'll set those all up right now. So maybe it's the actors weren't big enough names yet. Hardy was about to be Bane in Dark Knight Rises the next year. And Edgerton is not a star now, but he's such a good actor. Edgerton's done so many good things. When was Inception? 
Wasn't Inception 2010 or something? Right, that was before this. So that was a hell of a run for him because he's in Inception. I think he was in Bronson. Bronson. Bronson was 08 for sure. Okay, there you go. What a run then. Then he does this movie, which the IMDb loves. It's 159th on the IMDb. That might be the first time we've ever covered a movie or certainly one of the rare times that the IMDb is loved enough to put on their top 250, but this is there. And then, of course, he does Bane the next year in Dark Knight Rises, and The Revenant a couple years later gets nominated for that, supporting actor nomination. So Hardy, certainly a player now, but at the time, not so much. And Nick Nolte was persona non grata for reasons I don't understand. I always thought he was good. We'll get into him in a few minutes, though. And by the way, this has actually been remade in Bollywood, and it was really successful, even though Warrior was not that successful in North America or anywhere. That movie was called Brothers in, in India. It did quite well. You often have foreign titles dug up for some of the movies we do with either weird translations or alternate titles. I forgot to look for that this time. Oh, oh damn I it, man. I thought for sure this would be one where there would be like a funky foreign title somewhere. All right, I just looked it up. In Argentina, it is La Ultima Pelea. Pelea? I'm not really sure how you say that. P-E-L-E-A. La Ultima Pelea. Ultima. All right, back to the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Quickly, pivot to something we actually can talk about. Which was on Netflix, saving us from having to try to see a movie some other way when we still are stuck inside, or at least away from each other. I watched it a few days ago. You watched it a few days before that. What would you think of it? I think your first time watching it, right? And my second. What would you think? Yeah, I liked it a lot, actually. And it's important that I say that up front, because I'm going to sound super critical about elements of it. Mm -hmm. But I really enjoyed it. And you're right, it was the first time I saw it. Finished watching it, and I thought, yeah, that was pretty good. And then as more time passed, looking back, yeah, you know what? I really enjoyed watching that movie. I don't think it hit everything it tried to hit, necessarily, in terms of story beats. That said, I like Tom Hardy a lot. Joel Edgerton, I'm a little bit more hit or miss on. And you know I'd love me some Nick Nolte. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it was good. I'll take Edgerton, you take Hardy. I like Hardy, but I think Edgerton is a fantastic actor. He directs and writes now. I don't think he was doing that at this point, but he certainly has since. He played Uncle Owen in the Star Wars prequels. (laughs) Yeah, he did. And he's in The Great Gatsby. You look at his resume. Not one role sticks out. I think that's a compliment to him that he's that kind of character actor. And if somebody were to say, who doesn't know much about movies, but has seen movies the last 20 years or even 10 years, they might say, who's Joel Edgerton? I'd have to say, if you haven't seen Warrior, I don't know if I can pick out one role. But I think that's a compliment to him. Before Tom Hardy hit his star power that he has now, because of that run of movies that started with this, and then, of course, Inception and The Dark Knight were the two that I think really catapulted him. Well, Inception was before this, but I get your point. These three movies, 2010, 11, 12, that stretch. Before that, he had some really interesting and good roles. You mentioned Bronson, which I thought was a fantastic movie. Bronson. Bronson. But it's a super niche and weird movie, and he had a lot of other roles, smaller bit parts, and things like Black Hawk Down prior to that. I know. Too. There's a lot of actors in that movie that no one knew at the time. Yeah. I've looked that up recently. I can't think of them all right now, but he's one of them. I didn't know who he was then at all. He disappears into the role, and if he's not the star of the movie, he's the kind of guy, like you said of Joel Edgerton, you'd be hard-pressed to think back and list all those movies if you're like, well, who's Tom Hardy? Of course you can say Bane, yeah, sure, or Venom now, I guess. Mad Max also. Yeah, that's right, Fury Road. But you're right, it's a compliment to the actor that they can be the chameleons that disappear into the roles a little bit. He does it here, too. Outside of the Bane comparison, just because of the bulk and physicality of Mm -hmm. both this role and his Dark Knight Rises role, this is unlike anything else. Actually, you know what? Bronson, too, now that I say it. But it's a rare kind of thing for him, because it is a very visceral, physical character he's playing, and kind of unlike most that he has in his career at least in the movies i've seen we've already talked about how we like nolte i'm going to tell you my three favorite moments for each of them in this movie you have three for each one 
sorry, one for each guy. I okay, should I thought say. you were so going to do a three for three. No, no. I'll be sitting here for 10 minutes and you won't say a word. <laughs> All right, lay it on me. So Hardy doesn't want anything to do with his dad, and that's the Nick Nolte character. Nolte is Patty. He's a reformed alcoholic. He's a thousand days sober. He's really proud of that. And when Tommy comes back, he just wants to be trained. I think he even says, no hugging. So my favorite Tom Hardy moment in the movie is when, at least from behind, he does hug him. Because when he's actually mm. consoling his father, who's fallen off the wagon hard when they're in Atlantic City, the last time that Nolte spends any time on screen with either one of them, because he's part of that last scene, but he's not really with them, Tommy sees how bad off his father is and takes compassion on him, even though he hated him for all these years, blames him for his mother's death. He was an abusive alcoholic as well. That's his greatest moment, I think, hugging him from behind, holding him. He didn't owe him that, but he did it anyway. My favorite moment for Nolte is the night before that, and the reason why he falls off the wagon, when Tommy says to him, the one thing he and Brendan can agree on is we have absolutely no use for you, and the look on Nolte's face is one of the best things he's ever done. That one or two seconds, killer. And my favorite moment for Brendan is in the big match, which was pretty emotional. I watched that scene just to make sure I got it right, because Brendan says to him, I'm sorry, Tommy, I'm sorry, tap, I love you, in that order. Well, if you're a wrestling fan, one of the greatest moments in the history of wrestling, and of course they are actors just like these guys are, but these guys are playing a character too in wrestling. When Shawn Michaels retired Ric Flair, he said before he kicked him in the face, you couldn't hear it, but you could read his lips. And they've played this back thousands of times on WWE television ever since. I'm sorry. I love you. Because when he kicked him and beat him, that meant the Flair had to retire. Maybe Warrior was paying homage to that because he says the same thing except for the tap part. And that really got to me, especially watching again today on YouTube to confirm what he actually did say. Because he's finally, he doesn't really owe his brother an apology, but he is apologizing and also saying he loves him. And that's when, almost seconds later, what well, is seconds later, when Tommy taps out. So those three moments, I think, very small moments for each one, but great moments in this movie for these really good actors. I can't dispute any one of those individual moments i think they're all good and you describe them well that final scene with brendan when he's got tommy pinned and of course tommy's got the one broken arm at that point or it's separated shoulder or whatever it separated is. shoulder yeah that's meant to be the culmination not just of the fight and the result of the tournament but also their relationship right because tommy's got all this simmering anger that his older brother didn't run away with him when he was young when his mother was fleeing alcoholic nick nolte that's a nice moment and you're right. I think Nick Nolte has some great individual moments. I was a little surprised by the performance because you told me he was nominated at the very least. He didn't win the Oscar, did he? No, the one Oscar nomination this movie got was for Nolte as supporting actor. He hadn't been nominated in a long time. I think it was 20 years. Prince of Tides was the last nomination he had before that, I think, anyway. No, no, that's not right. Affliction. I think those are the three nominations he's ever had. Affliction, he's great in that, too. That was 98. But Christopher Plummer won that year for Beginners, where he plays a coming-out-of-the-closet older gay man. Very good performance, but he probably won partly as a lifetime achievement the award Plummer did. Yeah. I don't know that Nolte should have won over him in this movie, but it would have also been in some ways a lifetime achievement for him. Well, what do you think? Was he worthy of it? Do you think he should have been nominated for this Oscar or even won it? That's where I struggled, right? Because as much as I enjoyed his performance, I thought his role was quite a bit smaller than I expected it to be. And the comparison to me that comes to mind so quickly is Sylvester Stallone in Creed. Yep. The specific arcs of Rocky and Creed and Nick Nolte's character, Patty, in Warrior are very different, but the supporting role that they're playing to either their son or their pseudo-adoptive son, depending on the movie, are very similar. The difference is Sylvester Stallone's role in Creed, for which he won the Oscar, and has... No, he didn't. He didn't win? I thought he won for that. He should have won, but he was nominated only. He lost to Mark Rylance in Bridge of Spies, which Bev and I sneered at years ago. What? Now I'm outraged five years later. What is this? 
he at least got nominated to. But his role is so much more substantial. There's so much more to it than there is to Nick Nolte's role in Warrior. Nolte, he's immediately there, right? We're initiated into the movie. He's the first character we meet, of the characters we care about, at least. Exactly. And Tommy shows up on his doorstep, and we get a little bit between them. And we get a scene or two with him trying to sort of, like, make nice with Brendan later. I like that scene a lot, too. That's one of the best moments in the movie as well for Nolte, and maybe for any of them. When Brendan's saying, nope, this is not good enough. Felt real to me. My issue with it was the same issue I had with other elements of this movie. It's that this could be one of those things where if you looked at the original screenplay, you'd have a much different impression than the final product because it felt like this movie was taking some big emotional swings at various arcs through the movie. One of them being the dual Nick Nolte storylines of his alcoholism and his fracture relationships with his sons. But they didn't really dedicate what felt like enough screen time to make either one of those things feel terribly consequential to me except as it was reflected by either Tommy or Brendan. In Tommy or in Brendan, you get some of the anger and the resentment of their childhood as a result of Nick Nolte's alcoholism, but I never really got much of the flip side of it from Nick Nolte's perspective because it was never given a lot of room to breathe. You only ever got one or two scenes with either son and Nick Nolte's character, and then it was just gone and we're back to the fight aspect there's a lot of fighting in this movie too there is yeah so you've got to dedicate a lot of time to either the training or the fighting itself i get that Mm -hmm. between that nick nolte storyline the tommy's weird military history storyline his resentment with brendan over brendan staying behind when he left with his mother like his mother's death from some unnamed illness and poverty there's so much that they tried to cram with this movie i ultimately at the end of it thought maybe they could have just trimmed one of these side story arcs to just give a little bit more room to the others to breathe you know what should have been trimmed is the one i think that works the least and that is the military background yeah right down to the military the marines waiting to take him away okay he's got one more fight it's not like he's gonna run away they know where he is but really you're gonna let him fight and then you drag him away if he's (laughs) in trouble with them he should go with them as soon as they found him that's why he doesn't want walk-up music. That's why he uses his mother's maiden name rather than Conlon. That's why he doesn't stay in the ring when the fights are over. He knows they could find him if he's publicized well enough. Although I guess he's being publicized by being in this tournament, in Sparta, this tournament. But that's why he's bailing. I think that stuff didn't work that well. It does give him a nice background with the loyalty to the friend when he calls the woman in Texas. Yeah. And he's so traumatized because all of his buddies were killed in a friendly fire incident. Reminds actually of Pat Tillman, the real-life football player who was killed by friendly fire. That's a really good documentary, by the way, a bit of a sidebar. It's not really a sports documentary, but what is it? The Tillman story, it's called. Not really related to this, but just the idea that a guy goes into the military who was an athlete, but he didn't survive in reality. And of course, this guy obviously does and goes on to be an MMA fighter. And then he has to go peel potatoes or something. And I guess he can go back and be an MMA fighter when he fixes his shoulder and he's peeled those potatoes. Yeah, 100% I agree with you that that was the thing that worked the least. I mean, it was kind of fun to see the Marines in the stands singing whatever the Marine anthem is. Right, as his walk-up music, because he didn't have any before that. But the whole, he tore a door off a tank kind of thing. Yeah, okay. Not possible. Yeah, not possible unless the door was just open and maybe wedged shut from the inside and they couldn't get to it. And you're right, the whole deserting his unit. And even his agonized, I won't speak about it, and then when he's confronted by his father about the heroism of saving this group of stranded Marines in a tank... I only did it because I effectively was deserting my own unit after the friendly fire incident that massacred most of my friends. Am I a hero for saving these other people when I was abandoning my own unit? That's fine. It doesn't really do anything for Tommy's character because he's already a traumatized and withdrawn guy. I get that the widow that he speaks to, that he pledges the $5 million to if he wins the Sparta tournament, 
that man is supposed to be one of his best friends, right? Mm-hmm. From the Marine Corps. Do you think that the quote-unquote friendly fire incident that killed Manny and these other members of Tommy's unit, was that Tommy? Do you think he inadvertently killed them? Ooh, I didn't think of that. That was the implication I was left with, only because we're led to believe through some of these news clippings that we see on television later in the movie that there were multiple people killed in this unit through friendly fire, or multiple people killed. How many of them through friendly fire, I don't know. The only one that we ever see Tommy reach out to is this one widow with their child, right? And I'm thinking, okay, well, why does he feel so beholden? Is it just because she's the widow of his friend, or is it because he feels a burden that he has to fulfill because of his own actions? Hmm. Well, you know what that would remind me of then? A little bit would be Born on the Fourth of July, because Tom Cruise, towards the end of that movie, finally goes to see the family of a guy he killed in a friendly fire incident when he's in Vietnam. He's just in the fog of war. He's shooting at everybody. He sees his, not really friend, but somebody he was in the Corps with. Is he a Marine? Army? Whatever he is in the 4th of July. And he didn't mean to kill him, but he did. And it haunts him forever. He tries to report to his superiors. They don't want to hear about it. But he goes to tell the guy's family. And Lily Taylor plays the wife. And she says, I can't forgive you, sir. And the parents do seem to forgive him. So maybe that's a bit of a thing here, too. It's very subtle if it is, because I didn't pick up on that at all. I don't know if it's even intended or whether it's just the weird connections that my brain made because of the dialogue and the scenes. Aside from that conundrum that was toiling through my head, I think you're right. You don't need any of the military stuff. You can get rid of her as a reason for his fighting. His trauma is his backstory with his family. He doesn't need a trauma in the war, too. Well, that's just it. I think it's almost probably more effective if it starts and ends with his family. And his rationale for coming back and fighting, you don't really need one. The guy's been living in poverty his whole life. He's just went AWOL from the Marines. He probably wants to make five million bucks quick so he can then get out of the country and never be caught by the U.S. military looking for him. That's enough of a reason for him to want to come back and become a mixed martial arts fighter after not seeing his father for God knows how many years, right? I don't think you need the additional incentive of him wanting to give $5 million to this widow. Yeah, you can see how good he is at too because he beats the shit of that one guy. That trends, and that's what gets him in the tournament in the first place. Brendan has to work his way up. Well, Tommy's the hard-punching battler from Chicago, if you will. Not from Chicago, but that line in Rocky Three, one of the worst nicknames of all time for Clever Lang. But then Brendan is more the Rocky guy, although, of course, it is submissions in this for him, but that's how he beats people. He just eventually wears them down. I guess that's what Rocky does, too. He never really just pulverizes a guy with one punch the way that Tommy can or Clubber Lang can in the Rocky series. We always bring up Rocky, it seems, especially lately with these fight movies, like Girl Fight in this one. But anyway, I think that's the comparison you could make, is that Tommy is the guy filled with rage. That can backfire, too. But he takes people out very quickly in this tournament like he did that guy that got him noticed in the first place and got him in the tournament. (laughs) You said a few things there that I want to agree with wholeheartedly. The one comparison that immediately came to mind was Rocky, and not just because Rocky is kind of like the godfather of modern fight movies in the way that it sort of established a broad motif. There's a lot of comparisons to be made throughout this movie, and you're right, Brendan is rocky because he just gets the snot kicked out of him for a couple of rounds he takes more punishment than anyone else and he just keeps going right and that's rocky's mo right down to the line from rocky balboa where he says you just keep moving forward yeah that's how how it's done done. (laughs) and that's what brendan does he just keeps taking punishment until he catches his opponent in an off moment and he submits them but tommy i think my favorite moment in the movie bar none the second bout he fought against mad dog for exactly the reason you said He shows up at the sparring contest and says, yeah, yeah, I've got some experience fighting. And he gets in the ring with a guy that's meant to be essentially a contender, right? Mm -hmm. I got the impression that he wasn't a mixed martial arts champion or something, but he was considered 
a potential one of the favorites. He's one of the favorites. And he just beats the tar out of him in this sparring match. And then you're right, that goes viral. And you see Mad Dog later in the movie doing an interview saying, well, he got lucky. It was only a sparring match. Wait till we get him in the ring in a real thing, and then we'll see what's up. And in most movies, that would then lead to an extended meeting of these two guys again in the ring that was a knockdown, drag-out battle. But no, yep. Tommy just roars in, bowls him over, beats the tar out of him in 10 seconds, and it's over again. Oh, this poor Mad Dog guy. He just got <laughs> snuffed out by this no-name dude twice. I loved it so much. What about the favorite in this tournament? That would be Koba, played by Kurt Angle, the wrestler, who I don't think he ever actually got into real-life MMA stuff, but I think he thought about it, but he was getting too old. And of course, he still had a broken neck. Yeah. In the Olympics back in 96, he could wrestle through it. But then if you know anything about Kurt Angle, he never should have been wrestling as long as he was. And wrestling is tougher than people think is. We've talked about that in our wrestling movies. It isn't as easy as people seem to think it is. They're acting, yes, but they still put their bodies through hell. Oh, yeah. But if he actually wanted to go MMA for real, that would have been a different story. He might have gotten himself paralyzed. But that is him playing this character. I didn't recognize him when I saw this movie years ago. I didn't recognize him at all. I didn't Maybe because either. he got a little bit of hair. He'd been bald for years in the wrestling ring. Plus, he's in Kurt Angle machine mode in this movie, which he did in wrestling sometimes, but he also played comedy characters. He's nothing like that in this movie. He's completely an animal. And then somehow, Brendan beats him. And comes back as well because he should have lost, just like Rocky so often. He's losing on points, but he manages to knock people out at the end, whether it be Apollo or Clubber or Drago. Kurt Angle looked like a monster in this movie. Not as physically enormous as even... What was the actor that played Ivan Drago's son in Creed Two? Florian Montianu? Yeah, we had a lot of fun with his name. I remember when we talked about that. <laughs> he wasn't even quite as enormously large as Florian was. Not many people are. Not many people are. But there was something about his look that was just terrifying, whether it was the unkempt, unshaven look, or it looked like they maybe even gave him some bright blue contacts or something really intense. He's playing Russian, isn't he? Or Swedish or something? He was Russian. Russian, Russian, yeah. yeah. He looked like a monster, and we don't really get anything out of him. We just get a few brief scenes of him arriving at the ring. We get a clip of him on ESPN before the tournament, and then he shows up to the match against Brendan. We get a few fight moments, and it didn't last all that long. It was, what, two rounds or something? The one against Brendan? No, it lasted three rounds, and that's when Brendan came back. That's probably yeah. the longest fight sequence in the whole movie. I guess maybe the ending, but the ending's got so much slow motion as well that it probably is longer in that way. It's the Zack Snyder approach to how to do the end of a movie where it's really only a matter of minutes, but it seems like it's ten the brother's fight at the end of the movie was also three rounds, ultimately, right? Yeah. He submitted in the third. Because Tommy had him beat in the first round, but then Brendan would have won on... I think they do points in MMA, don't they? But anyway, Brendan would have won the second round. I could be wrong about that. But then that's when Tommy gets a shoulder injured, and you know it's over. Oh, no, maybe it goes four or five rounds. It does go more than three, maybe. Anyway. Max is at five normally, I think. Okay. And Tommy clearly can't win, but he's still just... I ain't going down no more. Well, you are going down because your shoulder's basically destroyed. Tough bastard. We should have said probably earlier than this that neither one of us are mixed martial arts UFC fans. I never watch. I can't. This stuff freaks me out. I probably told this story before. I know I've talked to Bev about this and maybe another podcast. I heard a fight when I lived on my own a long time ago in the apartment. I turned out the TV was going to bed. I heard a scrap going on and I heard the sound of flesh on flesh, somebody punching somebody in the face. And it freaked me out. I was 25 years old. I was a grown man and I was almost scared. It had nothing to do with me. I wasn't going to get attacked. But just hearing that, it made me feel sick almost. I don't know how badly the guy got beat up. It maybe wasn't even all that bad. So I can't watch people do this for real. I can watch wrestling. I can watch a movie about MMA. That's different. They're pretending to hurt each other. Sometimes they really do, I guess, in wrestling, but they don't intentionally do it. 
And when I've seen promos in MMA, and there's that one I always remember of some dude has, a, what do you call it, a crucifix kind of move where he's got both of his arms caught. So one arm is underneath oh, his yeah. shoulder or something, and then the other arm is trapped in his legs. Yeah. So the guy's exposed, and the guy who's got him trapped like that is just elbowing him, boom, 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 in the head repeatedly. And when I saw that promo, that's what, a second and a half, two seconds of video? I winced. I could not watch that. It's like the Mick Foley cage match. Yeah. I can never watch that again. I don't want to ever see that again in my life. And that was real. The difference in MMA is he was trying to hurt that guy to make him lose. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. For some reason, there's something about MMA fights that turned my stomach a little bit. This is a bit hypocritical, even though I'm not a huge boxing fan by any stretch either, or even really much of a wrestling fan. Not anymore. But boxing, you're trying to knock your opponent out or ultimately win on points, right? Depending on how long the match goes. But there's something about making your opponent give up through pain that is inherent to MMA fights. You're trying to hurt them so bad that these toughest people on the planet, men or women, just can't go on anymore. And there's just something about Mm -hmm. that that chills me a little bit too. As much as I respect the skill of these fighters, because it's a mix of martial arts and you get proficient at either a striking form as well as some sort of ground game, right? The grappling Mm -hmm. and the takedowns. And that stuff's not easy, so I have a lot of respect for the time that they put into the craft. Oh, me too. I'm not trying to disrespect that at all. I can't watch it either. It makes me a little queasy. Even watching this movie, some of the takedowns, which I thought were well done, again, I don't know MMA stuff, so if I'm Joe Rogan watching this, I might have all kinds of issues with the way that they show some of the takedowns. I go, that's not accurate. But to my eye, it looked pretty darn good. I agree much in the way I've criticized other movies for being a little bit over the top and trying to elicit a response from the crowd. One of the issues I had with this movie was the Koba character. You can have the top of the heap character. You can have the guy that is king of the hill, but you don't have to have him be the unbeatable monster, the guy that has never lost a match in his life, come over to the United States and then gets miraculously beaten by the guy that wasn't even a 500 fighter when he was in his prime. That is unbelievable to the extent that for a movie like this, that up until that point was all about believability. It was all about realism. Like it was a very savage movie, but it was totally believable to my eye. And then Koba is going to just destroy. I don't care how willful Brendan is. In reality, he wouldn't stand a chance. He should have A, lost and should have B, lost quickly. It's true. Well, we haven't really talked about Brendan's motivation for what's going on in this movie. And that's the only reason why he has any kind of chance to be good at all in this. So that works into my nutshell. Warrior in a nutshell. Hardworking, upstanding American man has to work two jobs just to keep his house. <laughs> because he does. He has to be an MMA fighter, which his wife doesn't even know about at first, and he has to be a physics teacher at school, and that's not even enough money to keep his house. And I remember I saw a clip recently of George Bush in the Sicko movie, the documentary. I just happened to see that recently. They show a clip of him talking to some woman. She's got three jobs. He says, isn't that wonderful? The American dream. Are you kidding me, you <laughs> asshole? She shouldn't have to work three jobs. She's an older woman just to survive, and this guy shouldn't have to work two jobs to survive. But that's why he's so devoted to this, and that's why he's able to last against both Koba, who does mess him up pretty bad, and then his own brother. He does break his brother's shoulder, effectively, or whatever separates it, but he should have lost before that because he's already worn down. This is taking place over a couple of days, and they both fought repeatedly, but Tommy's barely done anything. He's finished off everybody so fast. Brendan's gone multiple rounds each time. He's older. He should have been worn down. But I guess the whole point is, much like Rocky, he's just that determined. And they made it work, but it is unbelievable he beat Koba at all. And then to beat his brother as well, he probably shouldn't have done both of those things when he's already not as good as them in the first place. The reason that Rocky, A, it's because I have an illogical love for the movies that I saw when I was a kid. So that plays into it, no question about it. But by the time you get to like Rocky 3 and onward, it's 
Rocky the cartoon character and less about Rocky the real life Rocky was never a real life fighter but it ceased to try to be realistic as movies go and he became more of like a superhero whereas this movie he's not human he's like a piece of iron (laughs) yeah yeah, that's right Drago in this movie it really felt like they were striving for realism and successfully I think for the most part and then they got to that point in the tournament where I was just like I don't know guys this is stretching a little too far but also Tess is just a supportive wife where she's the Adrian you can't win against Koba she knows that but then she stands by him anyway so he's doing it for the money and Tommy's doing it for the officer and gentleman reason I've got nowhere else to go I've got nowhere else you mentioned Brendan's wife, who initially was wholly against him going mm-hmm. into this tournament. Then she is wholly for him when he's doing well. Yeah, exactly. She's quite the fair weather wife in this movie. Yes. When she thinks he's being a bouncer at a nightclub, she's like, yeah, that's yeah. cool. Dangerous, too. Yeah. Ain't no way some drunken idiot is going to pull a knife or a gun on you or anything like that. But God help you if you go into some sort of professional fight with medical personnel and referees on hand, because I will not stand for that. Right. It's true. <laughs> And he's also trained to do it, too. It's not like he's just stepping in completely blind to it. That's true. But I guess she knows nothing about it. She does turn around pretty quickly. She's given short shrift. I don't really know Jennifer Morrison all that well. I guess she was on House, the TV show. Oh, that's right. And she's great looking. She certainly helps the score factor in this movie. She's beautiful. And then the two guys are cut and looking fantastic. So it's a very chaste movie, much like a lot of the ones we've been covering lately. Girl Fight and Remember the Titans aren't sexual movies either. But when you have good looking people, yeah, you could score this movie. It's just not about that at all. Tommy doesn't exactly put out a scoring vibe in this movie. He's more like the aggressive, angry dude at the end of the bar that you don't want to go anywhere close to, right? I used to watch or read these articles and like men's health kind of stuff back when it was still kind of not a normal thing for these actors to just turn themselves into Greek gods for movie roles before Marvel made everyone do that. And in this movie, there's something about Tom Hardy. Like, I don't think he's a naturally huge guy. I think he's like 5'10 or something. I think he's shorter than that. Maybe even shorter than that. But there's something about the way that they trained him and whether or not this is his natural musculature or not. He's got the biggest shoulders, upper back, and trap muscles that make him look like this hulking Neanderthal kind of character. Mm. And like in Bane, too. He may have worn lifts in Bane, but he looks huge in Bane as well. He's 5'9", incidentally, according to the IMDb. They don't hide that fact. When he's standing heads up in the ring against his opponents... He's always the shorter guy, right? But he always looks like the more intimidating guy, too. He could have played Wolverine if Jackman... Well, Jackman's given up the role now. I guess if they want to recast him, maybe he's a good choice for it because he should be short if he's going to play the proper Wolverine character. Jackman's 6'1 or 6'2. He was great in the role for almost 20 years, but he was a little bit too tall for it. But Hardy is barely taller than me, and I'm sure as hell not tall, so maybe that's a good casting right there. Plus, he obviously can play a savage character quite well. And he's an English guy who plays so many of these American characters. You forget sometimes he is English, just like you forget Edgerton is Australian. That's right. They both have interesting accents in this movie. Yeah, that's not convincing enough. I didn't really get hung up on that, did you? No, I didn't really care. Tom Hardy's pretty great most of the time, but he does some pretty fun and sometimes weird things with his voice work. Well, Bane and Venom are great examples of that as two superhero roles. I was born to the ring, Batman. Right. You merely adopted it kind of stuff. <laughs> But even in Venom, he's got the New York accent that is just, at times, almost a caricature of New Yorkers. Whatever, you're having fun with the role, sure. It makes me wonder if it's a conscious choice on the part of the movie team to have him work out that way, to look that way. Because if you contrast that to Joel Edgerton, who's also, like you said, ripped by normal human being standards. The guy's ripped. But when he's in the ring opposite Tom Hardy, he looks not frail, but definitely small. 
Yeah, he's very slender in comparison, that's true. And he is, incidentally, 5'11", so he's a little bit taller, but not much. He's still shorter than you. He's not even six feet tall. And it plays into the fighting styles of the two guys in this movie, too, right? Because you've got Joel Edgerton, who's more of a takedown artist, wants to get people on the ground and submit them, whereas Tom Hardy's character is just pure savagery just goes straight at you right some chest kicks and just trying to get you on the ground and then punches to the head until you give up the physicality just plays directly into the approach of the fighters and directly into the attitudes of the characters right it's like pure aggression versus restrained logic almost which is what they probably always were as people too in their lives it looks like it was anyway like that we haven't said by the way gavin o'connor wrote and directed this movie i think he even produced it too and this is the guy that did one of our favorite movies, at least one of my favorite movies last year, one of my favorite sports movies ever, Miracle. So he's back also in the Atlantic Northeast because this is set mostly in Atlantic City. It starts in Pittsburgh. That's one reason I think Kurt Angle's in it, by the way, because they're in that area, and that's where he's from is Pittsburgh. But I think the opening shots are there where Nolte's supposed to be, and then they go to Atlantic City for more than half the movie because this tournament, the whole thing takes place in probably more than half the running time. I was surprised when they got to Atlantic City with, I don't know, maybe an hour and 10 minutes to go in the movie. So more than half of the time they're at that tournament in various ways, a lot of character scenes too. But anyway, so it was shot in California partly, but a lot of the exteriors were in those other two places. And then O'Connor, who did Miracle, of course, that took place at Lake Placid in New York State. And of these two sports movies, I like Miracle better for sure. I always will. They're actually pretty similar though. I'm going to give my score for this right now. You can do the same if you want. I would say seven, and I probably sound like I'm raving, and then it doesn't sound like a very high score, but only because this feels rote. We saw this kind of thing in The Fighter the year before. We saw this kind of thing in The Wrestler the year before, or a couple years before that. We saw this, obviously, in all the Rocky movies, and even some of the family stuff that isn't in sports movies. We've seen this kind of thing many times. It's done quite well, but it's also not given as much room to breathe as it might have been. The movie's two hours and 10 minutes or 11 minutes or 20 or something. It's a fairly long movie. Maybe because of the military stuff, like we said, it doesn't really get enough time to breathe with some of it. And maybe Nolte should have had more scenes with his sons. He's not really on screen with either one of them all that much because they focus so much on that last tournament. So I'm giving it a seven because I feel like it could have been better than it was. And I liked O'Connor's previous sports movie so much, Miracle. He also, by the way, did The Way Back this year with Ben Affleck. That was a sports movie as well. I think it was a basketball movie. I didn't see it because it played around the time COVID made everybody go home. But this guy can direct sports movies. Those are three, and two of them are pretty strong. This one's beloved by a lot of people. And like I say, seven out of ten. What about you? What would you give it? I'd probably rank a little bit higher than that. Maybe like a seven and a half. Okay, I'll give it seven and a half. We'll be the same. You convinced me. Yeah. (laughs) We're shaking hands in the ring here. Seven and a half. (laughs) I think I probably actually liked this movie, or at least enjoyed this movie a little bit more than I did Miracle. I don't know why. (gasps) What? Probably because of the acting performances of Nolte Edgerton and Hardy, if I'm honest. Okay, yeah, the cast is better. The cast is better. This is almost note for note, your rote fighting movie, right? From beginning to end, you can kind of sense how the beats are going to go. Or even the bad dad movie we've seen in so many examples, even just a regular little drama. But I don't necessarily hold that against it. The biggest knock on the whole thing is exactly what we talked about earlier, exactly what you just referenced. The one storyline that I really wish they had expanded upon and they didn't give room to breathe was the past of these characters because it underlies everything in this movie, right? This movie is all about their relationships, ultimately, and their relationships are founded in this trauma of their past. And all we get are hints at it, but we never get anything explicit, right? And I think if you give it a little bit more time and a little bit more explanation, a little bit more time to Nick Nolte's character, period then it probably becomes a movie that I would give an eight or an eight and a half to at least. Okay. We touched on, but never really talked about Nolte's characters drinking, right? You mentioned earlier that he's a thousand years, a thousand years. Good Lord. 
a thousand <laughs> days sober. So a little over, three years then. Yeah, it's about three years. I'm trying to reconstruct the history of this in my head, right? Because as we find out little bits and pieces about this family, we're never really given the whole story, but we're just fed tidbits. So we find out that Brendan was 16. We don't know how much older he is than Tommy, but he is older. And when he was 16, Tommy and their mother leave Nolte because he's a drunk and presumably an abusive drunk, or it's implied if not explicitly stated. Tommy, who is 12, 13, 14 at the time, maybe. Probably, yeah. He's a kid, basically. He's a kid. Puberty age, maybe. Yeah, he's running away with his mother. He wants Brendan to come with him. Brendan doesn't, he says, because he's in love with his high school sweetheart, who he later marries and is his wife in this movie. They have kids. And that's it. And then they never speak again until their interactions in this movie. Tommy is so upset by the fact that Brendan didn't go with him that he shuts his brother off from his life, even when his brother tries to reconcile with him during this movie and have a conversation about it. He just shuts him off. It was traumatic for young Tommy to go through the death of his mother alone in an apartment with no heat, as he says. And that has scarred him, and maybe he's an introverted personality to begin with, or an angry guy, whatever. That raises so many questions to me, because these are men in their 30s now, right? Around that, I guess, yeah. But it has to be, right? Because at one point, Brendan's trainer says, listen, Brendan, you were barely a 500 fighter even when you weren't on the wrong side of 30. So we're talking two decades. Brendan's never tried to seek out his brother. They've never connected. Nothing's happened. And if this movie is supposed to be set in the current time of around 2011, maybe it was a couple of years before that, but around that time, social media existed, Facebook existed, LinkedIn existed. Well, maybe Tommy refused him. You could argue that's what it was. It could be. But why was Tommy so upset? I would totally understand Tommy never wanting to speak to his father for 20 years if he was such an abusive alcoholic husband and father way back when. But Brendan didn't do that much to get this pissed on. He was a kid himself. He was barely older, so he's still basically a kid himself. That's right. So I wanted a little bit more about that relationship. And I also wanted a little bit more about Nick Nolte's life post-Tommy and his mother leaving. He kept drinking, I think, is what it was. He had to have been, right? Because like I said, I think it was about 20 years of time. And you just said he's been sober for about three years. So that's 17. No, what I mean is, yeah, he probably tried to stop drinking more than once. I guess that's what I should have said. That would have been a better way of putting it. I think he probably was on the program more than once. And now he's finally making it work for him until the faithful night before the last fight. But then maybe he won't go back to it again. He had one terrible night. But you know what the moment was that killed me where I said, give me a little bit more about this relationship, was the moment when Nick Nolte does go to see Brendan outside of Pittsburgh, wherever in the suburbs Brendan lives. I think they said at one point, right? But I can't remember where it was. He goes and he says, Brendan, Tommy's back in the burg. He's back at my place. That's when Brendan says, I'm not ready. I accept your apology, but I don't trust you and go away, essentially. Patty sees his granddaughters in the front door. He says, oh, that's so-and-so. She's so big. And that's my other granddaughter. I haven't seen them in three years. So he must have done something. I haven't seen my granddaughters in three years, and I'm now three years sober. Okay, I did something horrible three years ago to have my one remaining son cut me off. It was so bad that I said, okay, enough's enough. I'm going to be sober from here on So you wish you'd seen that or heard what that was? Why did Brendan cut him off, too, ultimately, after 17 years of putting up with him? You know what might be fair to say? Maybe Gavin O'Connor is trying to do the jazz thing. It's the notes you aren't hearing. Supposedly, yeah. people say that about jazz. Maybe that's what he's going for here. Maybe you're supposed to infer all of that. Like the look Patty has the night before the last fight when Tommy says to him that one thing we agree on is that we want nothing to do with you. The crush look on his face, that's enough. So, I don't know. Maybe O'Connor thinks the looks in the faces are enough with these three great actors, especially Nolte, who's such a legend through all these years. Even though he was shat on for so long when he did The Hulk in 2003 and looked ridiculous. Because his character looked ridiculous and he got pulled over for drunk driving or something. 
speeding. And he looked silly because he was looking like that for the movie. I never understood why people mocked that mugshot so much. He looked that way because he was shooting a fucking movie looking that way. I know. But it makes good TMZ headlines to not say that little detail. There are definitely moments where less is more. And that scene in the casino with Tommy and Patty is one of them that you just talked about. But I still feel like I wanted just another one, two scenes in there to flesh out that relationship. And if it comes at the expense of the army storyline, I would have been all for it. I'm with you on that. Get rid of all the army stuff. He doesn't need that kind of backstory. And a few more scenes that we maybe don't need as far as making it clear, absolutely clear. I don't need that like way you do, but I would prefer that to any of the military stuff because it just does really get in the way of the movie. And it does make it a little bit unrealistic. I guess it's a ticking clock that the military's there waiting to drag him away. But also, they're not going to do it before the fight's over. It's not like he has to hide from them and jump on the ring and then, oh, they'll never try to get me in here so I can get through the fight first. They're politely waiting for him, whether he goes through it or not. Until that's over, they're not going to do anything. So that ticking clock isn't really all that relevant either. We have Nick Nolte's character falling off the wagon after Tommy tells him, we got no use for you. And then that leads to the moment that you talked about earlier as one of your favorites where Tommy sees him in this horrible drunken state the next morning and he goes up behind him and gives him a hug after Patty rages at him a bit. Holds him in the bed, yeah. Yeah. Then we don't see Patty again until the very end of the movie, right? So then you have the moment with Brendan saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I love you, submit. And Tommy does. Brendan helps him out of the ring, pushes everyone off to the side. He's just won the tournament. Doesn't get his arm raised. He pushes the camera away. Get out of my face. This is not the point right now. That's right. He just walks right out. And then we get the shot of Patty. Smiling. Smiling. So what do you think the implication is intended to be with this ending? It's obviously meant to be that there's been and will be some kind of reconciliation between Tommy and Brendan. Whatever their futures may hold, they've come to some sort of understanding. They have a future now. What does that portend, do you think, or what does O'Connor intend to portend for Nick Nolte's character? Okay, I think he's smiling because he sees, well, one of his sons won the tournament, so he's got to be proud of that fact right there. The second is he saw them being warriors. He's got to be proud of that. The third is he sees them reconciling. He's really proud about that. If he had anything to say in that moment, maybe the character would be saying, well, even if I'm not part of their life anymore, they're together. That's not very good Nolte, is it? (laughs) It's hard to do Nolte. I'm going to hurt my voice. I still have to talk a little bit more here. Anyway, I think that might be all what's going in his head. Nolte doesn't cry in that moment. I'm glad he doesn't, but he does smile. I think that is all in his face, what I just said. It could be any of those things or even all of those things, especially the part, though, about my sons are reconciling. That's what matters the most because that's what the movie is about at the end. It doesn't have to be a winner. Well, there has to be a winner. But in the movie sense, it does not matter because it's not like Brendan, even for a second, does that. I just won. Okay, maybe for a second he does that. But then as soon as he gets Tommy to his feet, like I say, push the camera out of the way, push everybody out of the way. None of that matters. We're going to walk into the back and we're going to walk right into the camera shot. The very last thing you see is them getting close to the camera and Tommy's body, Tom Hardy's body, walking into the camera, basically cut to black credits. I was a little bit torn on that. And only because we get moments throughout the movie that really paint Patty raising his two sons as wrestlers and it's portrayed maybe in conjunction with the drinking or the drinking exacerbated his existing tendencies that he was the sport dad right the one that was trying to drive his kids to achieve things that he never could and both of them were successful I take it from clips in the movie at some level collegiate or otherwise maybe just high school Brendan, it sounds like, was maybe like a middling professional MMA fighter after graduating, but whatever. The fact that either of them can do this at all is impressive, though. Obviously, they had some talent and they could do this at all at this age. Oh, of course. 
that moment at the end where they're walking off together, the relationship between the brothers is clear, but is it intended that Nick Nolte's character is now happy for his sons because they've reconnected, or is it that they are achieving the heights in fighting that he always wanted them to and they never did? I think it's all those things. Or it could be. I think it's all those things playing on his face. Probably the motivations they gave him. Apparently they wrote this role for him, too, because Nolte was neighbors with O'Connor, I believe it was. And then the actors and the director and the other writer, what was his name? Let me look this up here. They apparently all lived together during filming in Pittsburgh. So it was O'Connor, oh. Edgerton, Hardy. I don't think Nolte lived there with them. And then Anthony Tambacus with his first script. The four of them, I guess, lived together through the filming. Also, Cliff Dorfman, who's a TV actor more than a writer, is the other guy who got writing credit on this. Now, before I forget this stuff, I still haven't given any of the numbers here, the Rotten Tomatoes and whatnot in the box office. So the Rotten Tomatoes critics like this movie quite a bit. 83% of them said yes, 7.3 out of 10, and 92% of audiences. So even though the critics liked it, the audiences loved it. And I mentioned it was 159th on the IMDb 250. And it was 131st at the 2011 U.S. box office. Harry Potter, Deathly Hallows Part 2 was number one. And Contagion, which Bev and I covered a few months ago, was number 45 so the one person we haven't talked about, he's got a pretty major role, is Kevin Dunn, who's done a lot of movies before. He's in Little Big League, which I think you want to do at some point, right? And he's mm-hmm. also in Draft Day, which we covered last year, I think it was. He was, that's right. But Kevin Dunn is Principal Zito, who effectively fires Brendan. Well, he at least lays him off because he finds out that he's been doing this MMA stuff. He's so supportive. He's so thrilled watching the fights. Brendan's doing great, and that's exciting to watch. And at the end, he's as thrilled as anybody. So my other net show for this, by the way, is does Brendan get his job back now? <laughs> He's impressed the principal so much. He's got to hire him back. The principal loves the guy, but he's the one that told him, get out of here. Kevin Dunn will always be the coke-sniffing accountant from one of the early seasons of Seinfeld. Right. That was the first thing I ever saw him in, and it's lodged in my brain now. Okay, the one thing that came to my mind is, could this character suspend Joel Edgerton's character for something he's doing in his own personal time. If there's a morality clause in his, if he has a contract, but whatever you want to call it for a teacher, then yes. But I don't know why MMA would be that. Even if you have a morality clause, I guess you could loosely try to enforce the fact that you're fighting in the parking lot of a strip club. Even that might be a stretch. But to say, like, on the side, I'm going to go be a professional, how's that any different than going... A sanctioned sport. How's that any worse than playing football? On the side. Well, some of the things in this movie that don't work are some of the elements like that. That's why I don't like this movie as much as Miracle, which is more focused. This one has things like that, where the principal seems a little inconsistent and out of his ass because he loves the guy so much when he actually watches him fight. Maybe that's supposed to be a comedy thing where it's, oh, this guy suspended him, and yet he's in love with his, you know what I'm saying, by in love with yeah. as a fighter. Oh, one thing I got to say before I get this, by the way, I wrote this down. I just noticed my notes. Back to the relationship. So Patty's kids, Homer when Bart and Lisa play hockey against each other. The winner will be showered with praise. The loser will be taunted and booed until my throat is sore. (laughs) One of the best examples of Homer being a terrible father, but one of the funniest. That is hilarious. Yeah, speaking of Homer and sporting movies, you could have called Brendan in this movie the brick hit house, just like Homer the boxer, because all he does is take punishment and the other guy gets tired. Which is also true about Rocky in all those movies, too. He basically takes the punishment. The other guy gets too tired and then he wins because he's got a hard head. Yeah, but you're right about the principal character. It is wildly inconsistent. And maybe the reason it didn't bother me that much is because that character's arc, and really Brendan's arc as a physics teacher entirely, has no bearing whatsoever on the movie, right? Except his students love him, too, and they're supporting him. They're in the crowd as well, outside. 
Brendan must be a good guy because both his students love him, and even though the principal suspended him because he had to, he's still rooting for him. But other than that, even if he hadn't lost his job or been suspended as a physics teacher, he still would have gone into the tournament because he still would have lost the house. Whatever he was doing on the side wasn't cutting it as far as the mortgage goes. They were going to foreclose in a few weeks. It was a little bit inconsistent the way that character played out, that whole arc played out. Aside from the suspension, the kids want to watch the fight in the auditorium to support him once Brendan gets into the Sparta tournament and the principal says, no, screw you. You want me to allow you to watch the very thing that I had to suspend him for? No. The next time we see the character, it's as you say, he was rooting for Brendan at home watching it. It gets a little hypocritical. But like I said, ultimately it doesn't really affect any of the important beats of the movie. So yeah, Kevin Dunn's kind of a fun character actor to watch. So And the banker who won't give him, what, the loan or whatever it is? is Noah Emmerich, who was in Miracle. He's the assistant coach, Craig Patrick. God, so many that guy type of character actors in this movie. Really good in Truman Show, too. He's Truman's buddy. <laughs> that was a cute scene, too, in the bank. You have refinanced your mortgage, and now you owe us a lot of money, and Joel Edgerton's character's like, you told me to do that. Emmerich's, well, I suggested it, but you're the one that said to do it, so mm-hmm. rip, flip you the bird, give me the money, or the bank takes your house. Just a single scene with him, but he really portrayed the asshole banker vibe super well. I expected him to come back. I had no reason to come back. When I saw his name in the credits, I didn't remember who he was because I saw this movie a long time ago. I expected he would have a bigger role because he's a very big part of Miracle. He's probably got the second most screen time of anyone after Kurt Russell. Well, he's almost always on screen with Kurt Russell. Well, I guess Russell has scenes without him. But anyway, in this movie, it's just that one little cameo moment. I guarantee you, if this movie came out in 2020, post-Marvelization of cinema... You would have had a post-credit or mid-credit sequence where it was just Brendan walking into the bank with a briefcase, (laughs) slamming it down on the desk, opening it up and giving him like a Goodwill hunting, how do you like them apples kind of line of some kind. (laughs) I'm buying a millionaire's house now because I can easily afford it. I made five million bucks in this Sparta tournament, asshole. I'm buying two houses. And Emmerich's character just going to go, what? (laughs) Credits. Sadly, we don't get it, but oh well. So we said our scores were 7.5 out of 10. Not really a scoreable movie, but good-looking people in it. Solid film. Definitely some problems. I would watch it again. I was surprised. Maybe because I saw that today on YouTube and it really affected me. Didn't quite make me throw the salty discharge out there. Effective music as well. That almost always helps. But hey, Gavin O'Connor can direct a sports movie. He's proven that twice. Yeah. How was your beer? The beer was very nondescript. It was not as punchy as this movie was, right? I gotta say. That is not a beer I would watch again, but I'm with you on Warrior. <laughs> I think I probably will watch it again sooner rather than later. Well, it's on Netflix, so you can watch it anytime you want to. And we got nothing but time these days, so yes. there you go. Oh, I said two sports movies, by the way, for O'Connor, but it's three because he did do The Way Back this year, which will probably be on demand at some point soon because it came out, I think, before we were all locked inside, but around that time. No, it was never going to be a blockbuster anyway. I think Affleck plays a alcoholic teacher or something like that like a basketball coach something like that it might be a Hoosier story I really don't know much about it because Hoosiers of course he's an alcoholic but he does have a background where he's got to redeem himself because he was a jerk to a kid a long time ago and got fired so I'll probably see that at some point too okay well in two weeks we don't know we're doing that again <laughs> because we want to cover a baseball movie if they're going to come back because in two weeks it's going to be I don't know my calendar with me it's over there and it's still in May but anyway it'd be the end of June somewhere I guess the 29th I don't know whatever the hell it is but if baseball is coming back, it'll be around that time. So if that's the case, we'll probably do Moneyball. That's also on Netflix. Mm-hmm. I love the free ones. But to say right now, who knows? Probably Moneyball. <laughs> we'll throw a dart at a list somewhere and see what comes up. Mm-hmm. All right. I am on Twitter, and so is he. I am at MovieFiend51. He is at Scoring at Movies. 
We're on Stitcher, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts under Top 100 Project. All of our episodes, 53 of them now, are there. And, of course, all the ones with Bev as well are there. Tell me to tap, Chris. I give up. I'm sorry, Chris. I love you. Wait. <laughs> sorry, Chris. I love you. Got to combine both Nolte and The Stranger in this one. Take her easy. I love you.